Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23 and going down to verse 30, which you may find. Oh, I, I lied. We're not going to finish chapter 3. We're saving one verse for next week. So we're going to go from 23 down to 30. <clears throat> this again is the word of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. What then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law by a law of works. No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? <clears throat> is he not also the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Verse 31, which we won't cover this morning, says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So I am going to save that last rhetorical question until next week. I was going to put it at the end of the sermon, but I would just, the sermon will be twice as long and none of you want that. So we'll cover that next week. And it's a, it's a brilliant and beautiful sort of twist at the end of that passage. And that's going to be really exciting. But as we go through Romans three and finish up, this passage sort of answers the question. So we're looking at, you know, man, there's a lot of <clears throat> sin in the world, right? Roman, from Romans 1 right through chapter 3, we just see that man has failed at every turn to please God. We have failed him. We have not obeyed the law of nature, right? Even the message of nature we have suppressed. We have failed to uphold even the law of our own conscience. We, we, we can't even live by our own law. And we certainly can't live by God's law. So we've really messed up. And there's nothing humans can do to sort of overcome that failure toward God without him acting. And, and you, you look at that as a big problem, right? Sort of humanity has a huge problem. <clears throat> and I got thinking last night as I was preparing um, of big corporate recalls. Have you ever thought about, um, you hear on the radio, like, or you, sometimes you get a letter, you know, your model Honda may be affected by an airbag recall. Well, I was looking at what some of the most expensive recalls are in the history of products. Um, and I think Toyota has the record. And this is about six years ago. Um, they had an accelerator, a digital accelerator that stuck. And they had a few people testify that their cars would accelerate without instruction and basically ram into somebody on the highway going full speed. I mean, like open throttle. <clears throat> and there was enough testimony that Toyota had to admit that it was their mistake. And they had to recall, I think something in the area, it was a $400 billion recall. I mean, it just covered about, it covered Lexus and Toyota across models. I think that's the most expensive corporate recall in, in, in history. And that's a massive expense for that company to, to, to be reliable. They had to admit that it was their mistake. And <clears throat> when I look at the, the first three chapters of Romans, <clears throat> you think, what would it cost to fix this? That's sort of the question that I think sort of comes out and, and Paul answers. 
Now, the thing is, it's not God's recall. <clears throat> it's not God saying, well, I built it wrong and I'm going to have to fix it. We've shown that it's man who dove into sin willingly of our own desire. And then God steps up and says, I will pay to fix this. And so really what we're looking at this morning is the cost of our freedom, the cost of our redemption. And, and, and I think it also asks the question, how would it affect you to see the cost of your redemption played out in public? If you saw the cost of what it was to redeem you, how would it affect you? And the title of my sermon, which I think gives the answer to that is where is boasting? Well, how would it affect the church to see the cost of our redemption played out in public? And so our outline just goes very simply uh, that there is grace of God for every sinner. There is a price for our freedom. And there is therefore no boasting in Christ. That's, that's our outline. That's where the text takes us. Again, last week we looked at verse 21 and 22. So we're 23 to 30 this morning. And let's look at the grace of God for every believer. We looked two weeks ago. Uh, Roland took um, a beautiful passage for us last week and unfolded our inheritance in heaven. So think back two weeks <clears throat> to that phrase, but now the righteousness of God. And it shows that that pivotal moment in history where God revealed a new righteousness, a righteousness that did not merely judge us and evaluate us, but a righteousness that was given to us as a gift. Um, and so this explains that a little bit more. This passage in verse 23 is fairly well known. It's part of what people call the Romans road. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, I don't know what the Romans road is, but Romans 323 is one that kids will often memorize in Awanas, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, it's, a, it's a basic premise of scripture, that there are none who somehow escape that, <clears throat> you know, though I'm a little bit better, I haven't quite fallen short of God's glory. You know, there's nobody who can claim that. Whether Mother Teresa, you know, all the way to your favorite preacher, you know, maybe your spouse that you think is absolutely perfect, um, they have indeed all fallen Short. I know it's hard to believe. And so this passage, although it's well known, it needs to be taken in context. The context is very important here. The context is how Paul describes how the law has been broken. <clears throat> that glory of God is the law of God. It is the fact that we have specifically violated God's law. In fact, that falling short of the glory of God in its original translation, I was reading Martin Luther on this, who used, you know, the first German Bible um, it's translated, there are none who can glory before God. In other words, there are none who can come before God and of themselves say, you know, Lord, look at my life. That's glorying in front of somebody, you know? Um, and so there are none who can bring themselves before God and say, look at what I've done. There are none. Uh, specifically, we have failed to uphold God's law. We have all hated our neighbors. We have fornicated, cheated, lied, blasphemed, Dishonored our parents, we're all lawbreakers. That, <clears throat> that is the essence of what failing to glory before God is, is that we come with a code in our hand, and by the standard of that code, we fail at every level. Ray Comfort does a really good job in his evangelism by going through the Ten Commandments of God <clears throat> and helping people see that they don't have any standing. They cannot glory before God. And often you see tears well up in people's eyes when they realize, they recognize that by God's very simple law, it's only 10 commandments by that very simple law. We all stand tainted by our own sin. And it reminds us again that there is no group 
or person who will have special exemption. Remember, that's one of the questions about the Jews is that because God gave them the law, does that mean that he will sort of whisk them you know, off backstage when the judgment comes? It's like, well, you're my special people. You have the law. <clears throat> Paul has shown that receiving the law doesn't justify you. Receiving the law does not forgive you. In fact, it only adds responsibility to you, right? We in the church, just because you hear the word of God, just because you own a Bible, just because you were, you know, your parents taught you the lessons, that doesn't justify you. It's only by faith, which is good news and bad news, right? It's good news because everybody can have faith. You put your trust in God. The bad news is you cannot rely on the things that you thought, you know, would secure you a VIP spot on that, you know, on that day. And so regardless of what you heard or what your pedigree is or your national hood or anything like that, um, you must have faith. And so <clears throat> the field is leveled. Romans has leveled the field. We're all sinners. You know, some had different roles in history. Acts 17 says God made the nation so that they might seek after God. He has given every nation some evidence of, of his existence and opportunity to seek him, whether you're the Jews or the Chaldeans or anything else, but the field is leveled. We're all together. We're all together unable to glory before God. And if, and if every person is left unable to glory before God, that means there's only one person left who can do anything about it. And that's, that's God himself. That's where Romans wants to establish the gospel. We have to all be put together in the same, you know, boat or jail cell or however you want to call it so that we can all together agree. None of us can get us out of here. <clears throat> there are no saviors from among men. We have to look to the living God himself to fix this. Only God can do something about our broken state. We cannot. And that's such a critical truth of the gospel. Anybody who thinks they can pull themselves out, uh, they, they can't. And they will miss the gospel. He alone can act to reverse sin. And it says it right in the text. Therefore, there is no distinction. That's in verse 22. There's no distinction. All have sinned and they all fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24 and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is, that is in Jesus Christ. And so if we are altogether unable to glory before God, then any salvation we have must be a gift. It must be something we didn't deserve. It must be something we didn't ask for. That's what grace is. That's what the meaning of the word and the, and the concept of grace really is. It's that none of us were looking None of us deserved it. <clears throat> and yet God put forward a gift. He put forward a gift to, to humanity who could do nothing for themselves. It's a gift of God's grace, the redemption that we have. Remember that the word justified means to be declared righteous. It means for somebody to look at you, know all of your wickedness, and say, I declare you righteous. And somebody who has the authority to do that. My kids think, you know, that I'm pretty perfect. But that doesn't, that's not the standard that I'll be judged by. Okay, Wynn doesn't actually think that. She's like, no, I don't. Dad. When they're a bit younger, maybe when they're about two, they think you're perfect. Right? But being declared just by your children is not good enough. We need to be declared just by the judge. And the gospel does that. The gospel is where the judge looks at you <clears throat> through your whole life, sees all of your sin, and says, I can declare you righteous. And I can do it as a gift. And that's the gospel. This declaration, again, it's, it's, it's a financial term as well. This word redemption is a financial term. 
It's the term for the price of a slave purchased into freedom. That's the term redemption. The, the book of Ruth covers that really well, right? So what does it cost to buy a slave? That is to redeem somebody, to purchase their freedom from their slaveholder. That the gospel uses that financial term. And in fact, it says that we were bought with a price in one of the book of Corinthians, that we were purchased from slavery into freedom. And Romans deals with that really well in chapter six. I love it. But what, where does that leave us in the gospel? It's grace that nobody came into the kingdom with the money that they had in their pockets. Nobody came into the kingdom with the righteousness that they kept in their satchel bag. <clears throat> we were all bought, you know, morally speaking, naked. We had nowhere to hide some righteous deed. We were naked before God as Adam and Eve were and clothed by a righteousness that was not our own. And so our redemption is pure grace. It's pure grace. It's pure supplied by God given to us outside of what we could have done. And the text makes that essential for us. Now, <clears throat> does grace mean free? It's free to us, but there's a price to our freedom. And that's where the text goes next. There is a price to your freedom. There is a price to your redemption. And we know what that price is. It's not sort of kept, you know, behind a redacted document. Well, we don't really know what the price of our freedom was. We don't, we do. The Bible tells us. So it was a gift, but it was not without cost to God who paid it. You ever want you know, give your kids gifts for their birthdays or whatever, <clears throat> and they know that it's a gift, but they have no clue how much it costs you. And there's no way to really explain it to them because they don't really get money. You know, as they get older, they're starting to understand it, but, um, they just sort of enjoy it, right? And, and, and sometimes, when, you know, you buy your kid's Lego and then it breaks. Maybe this is just me, but I get a little bit frustrated with the broken Lego. I'm like, no, let's fix it. Like, I paid money for this. This is a nice toy. And the Bible tells us the cost of our redemption. Because the price of our redemption is part of how we live according to the gospel. Understanding the cost of our freedom is part of what motivates us and strengthens us to actually live for Christ. And, that, and that's key. We don't just think generically that God just, you know, magically brought us out of sin and put us in righteousness. We actually see the transaction take place. And it is that transaction that gives us the reality of our sin and also the fullness of our freedom. The price was as high as it could be. As a Christian and people outside the church, they generally know that our hope is in Christ. Christianity is about Jesus, right? That's, that's sort of an easy one-to-one. -one. But in what way? How do we, in what way is our hope in Christ? This text answers that question. How do we find our hope in Christ? How is our hope and our redemption in Christ? Verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Most people would say, yeah, that sounds pretty Christian. We're redeemed by Christ. Okay, but <clears throat> how? How did Christ redeem us? Verse 25, whom, that's Jesus, whom God put forward, uh, New American Standard says, put on display, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That sounds like a theological textbook in some ways, but let's unpack that and we'll find out how Jesus Christ himself paid for our freedom. Well, the first thing we have to look at is 
whom God put forward or put on display. Jesus was put on display by some in some by God in some way to purchase our freedom. So let's look back, look back on the life of Christ and well, maybe it was the transfiguration. That was like a beautiful way that God put Christ on display. He made his clothes white as snow. He spoke from heaven. He said, this is my beloved son. And the prophets appeared with Christ. That would be an amazing way we'd say, oh, God put Christ on display to the three disciples who were with him. Maybe it was the feeding of the 5,000, where God through Christ fed a multitude through one meal. That would be a fantastic display of Christ's power through from God. What about when Jesus turned water to wine? Was that the display of Christ? And when they said, well, who is this man who can turn water to wine? Maybe it was walking on the water. That was a brilliant display of Christ's power, that his, his lordship over creation. There's a lot of instances that we might think that's where God put Christ on display. When Jesus got into the boat, the disciples said, surely this is the son of God. So in some ways, he was displayed there as being who he was. Well, no, the text doesn't allow any of those things. <clears throat> the text gives us only one option, and that is in his blood. It's unmistakable. It's right here in the text. He put forward as a propitiation by his blood, by his blood. That's the display that purchased our freedom. It was the blood of the cross of Christ. And again, we know that because Jesus, the only two mentions of him bleeding, he healed those who were bleeding, but he only bled once. He sweat as drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. I'm not sure if those were literal or uh, figurative, but on the cross, he bled. A, a spear was thrust into his side and blood and water came out. It was his blood that God put on display for our redemption. But that still doesn't answer the question, how did he redeem us? So Jesus died. So he bled. What does that have to do with your sin and my sin and the problem of our corruption? The text goes on. It tells us God put forward, verse 24, as a propitiation in his blood. <clears throat> what does propitiation mean? That's a, that's, a, that's a theological word that's actually worth learning um, because it's in the text. It's not a word that somebody invented or coined to describe something in the text to make it more complicated. It's a word that's right here in the text. So you should learn it to propitiate or to be a propitiation is to become an atoning victim. The one whose death would atone for something to atone is to satisfy for I couldn't get the word satisfaction out of my mind as I was studying this week. God put Christ forward as a propitiation or as a satisfaction to God to be received by faith. Well, in what, in what way was God satisfied? Well, we've already seen that his righteousness is revealed in the law. So God's righteousness is satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf to be received by faith. So God is not just merely satisfied in Christ, but he is satisfied with those who have faith in Christ, particularly with regard to his blood on display. What does it mean? To demonstrate his righteousness. That's what he was doing on the cross. By his blood to be received by faith. Let the text show you in the second half of verse 25 
Do not miss this critical statement. This was to show God's righteousness. He put Christ on display to demonstrate his righteousness to the world. We say, in what way does it display his righteousness? The text tells us, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So it would be like me drawing up a list with my perfect memory when Hendrick or Wynn or anybody turns 18. And I say, now, I had passed over a lot of your sins, but I've kept a record here. And now you're going to pay for them now that you're an adult. So I'm going to dock you a dollar for every sin that I forgot or passed over because I was feeling good that day. I'm going to dock you money for every sin that I didn't discipline. I had passed over former sins, but at the right time, I need to display my righteousness against those sins. Now, as a parent, we can't do that because we're not perfectly righteous. We don't have a perfect record of sins and we ought not to keep them. But God does because God is perfectly righteous. There's not one sin. Put it this way. There's not one sin from the creation of Adam and Eve till the consummation of everything in Christ. There's not one sin that God will not have perfectly judged. There's not one sin, whether done publicly or in secret, whether done hypocritically or sincerely. There's not one sin that God will not have poured his wrath out onto. If you are in Christ, he poured that wrath on him for you. If you are outside of Christ, that wrath will come upon you. God does not forget any sin except for those who are in Christ because he poured his wrath out. He demonstrated his righteousness in Christ. God put him on public display to show that he is serious about sin, to show that there is a cost for sin. And again, how high was that cost? It was the spotless son of God. It was God himself shedding his blood for sins that he did not commit. Pilate himself said, this man has done nothing wrong. He was perfect. He was the son of God. John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My sin, if you are in Christ, your sin was placed on Jesus, not on you. That's what it means for God to display his righteousness in Christ through his blood. Remember that Jesus in submission to God laid down his own life to expiate the sins of all who trust in him. So Jesus, in his submission to God, but also in his perfect unity with God, laid down <laughs> excuse me, his own life. He said very clearly, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I will take it up again. But what I have to address here, <clears throat> and I don't often do this, but I want to address a specific error that people will use to attack this doctrine. Because I, this is the heart and soul of your acceptance. This is how you can know your sin is finished because God in Christ has forgiven them and he has displayed his righteousness against your sin on somebody else. That's the only reason a Christian can wake up without dread of tomorrow or dread of dying. So, so many people are afraid of dying. They know that their sin will have a reckoning in some way, but there are some who attack this notion that God put Jesus on display to take care of your sin. One of them, and, and I think this has been attacked through history, but I'm going to address um, those who would say in our day, and some of them are well-known. These are not just you know men hiding off in the blogosphere, just you know spouting off some words that nobody's reading. William Young, who authored uh, a little-known book called The Shack, 
which was turned into a Hollywood film about five years ago. And actually, uh, Evergreen, when we were brand new, uh, we took a stand against that film. We, we put an article saying, you know, this is not a good film. It doesn't depict uh, the Godhead accurately. It's not doctrinally sound. It's not going to lead you to the real God of Scripture. Uh, and we took some heat for that because you're not allowed to criticize things often um, in the church. But William Young, who wrote The Shack, he says, quote, who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. He said elsewhere that God could be thought of in those terms as a, as a divine child abuser. Um, I mean, I, I tremble just to read his quote. If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser. <clears throat> it is often this cruel and monstrous God that atheists refuse to acknowledge. Rightly so, for better no God than this one. I'll say just as an aside, the Bible doesn't say that God invented the cross. Rome did. But he did put Christ forward to hang on it. Isaiah 53 makes that very clear. Anyway, that's William Young. Uh, Greg Boyd uh, goes, I would say, further than that and, and, and says, the one who demands blood is Satan, not God. I mean, again, I, I tremble to read this. This is attributing to Satan the things of God. It's, it's heresy in its purest form. The one who demands blood is Satan, not God. Again, there's not one scriptural passage that you could ever use to, to demonstrate that claim. In fact, Satan's temptation to Jesus was to avoid blood, wasn't it? Satan's temptation to Jesus was throw yourself off this temple and the angels will bear you up. Prove your God by, by saving yourself. Right? And the one on the cross said, if you are truly God, then save yourself and us. Take yourself off of the cross. Spare yourself the blood. Uh, Bruxy Cavey, who's a more local example, he's Canadian. He lives and serves in a, a church uh, about four hours from here. Bruxy Cavey in the same video says, quote, God can forgive without blood, but he enters our need, our need to see blood. And he says, I will give you a, a visual illustration you are free. Not one more drop of blood needs to be spilled. And then he quotes Hebrews 9.24, which says, Does not the law say that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin? And Broxy Cavey says, That is a principle of the law, not of Almighty God. And so there he separates the law of God from the word of God, saying the law was invented by man. We're the ones that want to see blood, and we're the bloodthirsty ones but God demands no blood. All of these perspectives fail on the basis of the text, not on the basis of church tradition. I think if you just open your Bible and read the words, we see that God put Jesus forward or put him on display as a propitiation or as an atonement. We know what an atonement is because the Old Testament tells us an atonement is a blood sacrifice for sin to be received by faith to show God's righteousness. I mean, the, the text can't not get more clear than that. It fails on the basis of the text, if not many other portions of scripture, and on their view of scripture in and of itself, which again, I would say to say that the law of God or the law is somehow a man-made object that God doesn't stand by, he just kind of uses it as an illustration, uh, is completely wrong of the view of scripture, which we believe that all scripture is written and inspired by God. All of it from Genesis to Revelation, every single word. We know the text tells us what the origin of the death of Jesus is, what the purpose of it is, what the meaning of it is. 
what the public death of Jesus Christ was is made clear to us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder what the cross of Jesus was about. Furthermore, if God does not actually have wrath against sin, then we don't worship a righteous God. We don't worship the God that he claims to be, which is righteous, sinless, uh, glorious, so far as we can't even see him in our sinful state without being destroyed by the glory of God. If God has no wrath against sin, then he is not truly righteous. And I would, I would challenge somebody who would say, God can be righteous without having wrath against sin. Put God in a room with the worst sinner you can think of and imagine how that conversation would go that would satisfy your vision of justice. How would you expect that conversation to go in a way that would satisfy your vision of justice? If we worship a God with no wrath against sin, he is not a righteous God and there is no basis for the gospel. There's no basis for faith in Christ. There's no basis for Jesus' blood. And if God has not placed that wrath upon Jesus Christ for you, then you have the expectation of judgment even now. And last and probably most horrendous about these perspectives is that if God did not need Christ to shed blood or to go through the sacrifice for us to be forgiven, in my mind, that makes God all the more abusive of his son. If it was just an illustration and yet God allowed the same thing to happen to his son, then, it's, then that is wicked. But because of God's righteous demands in the law for an innocent, the blood of an innocent creature to wash away the sins of the sinner, then again, we have a God who is arbitrary and insincere. The reason I bring that up is because this is a popular doctrine. And the reason why it's popular is because this is a difficult thing to understand. It's a difficult thing to embrace. Does God really have wrath against sin? Did God really put Jesus on display to display his righteousness? The truth is that the Bible tells us yes. And I'm going to share a little bit more on dealing with hard passages in the next few weeks um, because I do want to help with that. I mean, do we serve a God who would put his own son on display to atone for our sin? The Bible says yes. But what I do want to warn you is that these types of teachers are convincing. I've listened to their messages. I've listened to them speak and they are persuasive. These men don't come across as rank, biblically illiterate, disrespectful, and it can be easy to be persuaded of something that is less offensive and less difficult to explain to an unbeliever. The other reality is that there are many ways to depart the truth. There are many ways to walk off the path of what scripture says and when we begin to do that, we don't know where the stopping point is as Christians. We don't know where that end game will lead. What, what other parts of scripture will we reject and distort and twist? And what other things will we miss out on in terms of what it means to be a Christian? And so I do want to just put that forward as a warning. Avoid the notion that Jesus' death was simply symbolic. Avoid the notion that his death was some generic display of love without any concrete realities to it. Avoid the notion that his death was a display of non-resistance. Those ideas are all heresy because they violate scripture. Not because I don't like those people or those who teach those doctrines. Not because I don't like them. It's because the text that I read contradicts their teaching. And the scriptures are very somber and sobering about those who would teach distortions of the scripture. 
and they're happening in our own backyard. They're happening here among thousands in our own backyard here in Ontario and in Canada and in North America. And it leads the church away from the true and living God. Now, do we want to stay here in this, in this sort of negative critique of wrong doctrine? No, because the text goes on to say his blood was God's idea. It was to cleanse us. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? If you are in Christ, God is both just, he is both righteous, he proved it in Jesus Christ, that he is a righteous wrath against sin. We can trust that he is fully good and fully righteous, but he's also the justifier. He's not only just, he justifies. He justifies, he declares righteous in his own righteousness. And those two things, God does not contradict himself. Isn't that wonderful? God does not stain his character by forgiving you. That's a humbling thought. <clears throat> if God forgave me without any just penalty for my sin, my forgiveness would stain his character. And so in the gospel, we look at God both as just and our justifier. He has accepted us in the basis of Christ. Now, of course, that is the good news. And where does this leave us? Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of your boasting if you understand this about the gospel? Paul says, it is excluded. It has no place in the church. It has no place in the gospel. Again, the tin can of all the things that we can be proud of that we did for our salvation is scraped clean in the gospel. The only good in us is a good that came from the outside and was placed in us by the Holy Spirit. God works the fruit of repentance in us. God works good works in us for our walking and for our doing. It all comes from God. All of it comes from God. There's no boasting. There is no boasting. Now, he explains that a bit more. It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one who is justified apart from works of the law. That's what this is all about. We've just displayed that nobody will please God by works of the law. They will please God by faith in Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith, right? Remember Habakkuk? That's the way that we please God. We put faith and trust in the work that he has done in Jesus Christ. That's how we please him. We don't please him by stacking up our good works in the law. And so there's no, there's no boasting because we didn't do anything. And the reason is because God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Ephesians 2 says he made out of two men, he made one, Jews and Gentiles. He united us. We're all united in our sinfulness. And the good news is that we're all united in our salvation. If we were all equally unable to help ourselves in sin, we are all unequally unable to boast in the gospel. We have no right to boast. And so it makes us equal with each other. It unifies the church when we recognize that nobody got here based on anything special they did. We were all equally helpless. And so to boast in this context is to somehow separate yourself from others based on what you think you should be recognized for. Some of us come from a long and proud heritage of Christian, maybe pastors in our families or, or missionaries or, you know, um, you know, Blair and Sonia's parents were, were part of a, a really big and faithful church and, and, and helped give 
you know, money to the seminary. I'm not trying to put you on a pedestal, but there's interest. There's amazing Christian heritage that goes back many years in some families. And some of us might be tempted to say, well, my grandfather helped found a seminary. My grandfather helped found this great church. My grandfather preached in this pulpit. My grandfather did this, or my grandmother raised all these Christians. And, but that is to separate yourself from others in the church who you think are undeserving. Maybe somebody came in off the street, a drug addict, utterly hopeless, the first in generations in their family to ever call upon the name of the Lord. They don't have their stuff together. They don't own a Bible. They don't have a nice leather library. And we say, well, they're saved, but just barely. Because look at how little they've done. You know, they, it's going to take something to earn their place in the church. We can so subconsciously do that. That's what boasting is in Paul's mind here. He has shown that God justifies the circumcised and the uncircumcised by faith. So we can sometimes say, well, I have faith in God, but God also recognizes all that good stuff that I did. And that's probably why I'm here today. God would never let me go into rebellion because, I mean, my family has been so important to the church for so many years. Paul says, if you understand this gospel, you identify with the poor beggar who comes in, maybe still addicted to drugs. You identify with that person more than with the cleaned up saint. Because you recognize that that's just a visual picture of spiritually where I was before Christ, even in my white collar, even in my seminary donations, even in all my evangelism, even in all the things I did without Christ. That's what I look like spiritually addicted, broken, rebellious against God and saved purely by faith. And you, know, you see the joy on people's faces when they come in, they've never known the church and they meet Christ for the first time. The joy that those people have is because they recognize they had nothing to bring. The problem with us who maybe identify more with the Jewish faith is that we fail to recognize that we brought nothing. We start to think that we brought something. And that's what boasting is. Paul says, where is boasting? It's excluded. There can be no boasting. And this is how the church stays together. We don't elevate ourselves based on what we think our merits are. And man, is that just a convicting thought, you know? It's like uh, Jesus, you know, tells the parable of the, um, the man who hired uh, some people to work in a field and he sent them out early in the morning. He agreed what he was going to pay them. And then late in the day, he needed some more workers. So he brought some in off the street. And when he comes to pay them, he pays them all the same thing. And the people who were there a long time start grumbling. So like, well, we did a whole bunch more work. And he says, but did I not agree on your wages? You agreed what you were going to get paid and you got it. So why are you mad? You're mad because you look at other people who think you think did less and it creates discontentment. It creates comparison. It creates division in the church. And God says, you all did nothing. The only thing we bring into the equation of the gospel is our sin. That's the only thing that we bring. God brings the atoning sacrifice. We bring the sin to be sacrificed for. That's our only contribution. But that's a good thing. That is where our hope is. is that there's nothing we can do. There's nothing um, that we can do. Here's the other thing. If, if there's nothing you can do to contribute to yourself to your salvation, there's also nothing you can do to destroy it. Those that God has redeemed, he keeps as his own. And I want to read for you. Um, oh, I hope I've got the passage correct here. Yes. I just want to read this as a way of summarizing I think what we've seen this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, verses uh, 18 to 27. Just listen to this. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? That's sort of the same question. Where is boasting? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of man. This place is, again, God at the center of the gospel. And so as we wrap up, I just want to remind us that the gospel is fully good news. I don't mean the gospel is full of good news. I mean, it is fully good news. It's not partial or the first half of the good news, which is that, well, God did his part. Now you just need to do your part. It's fully good news. If you are in Christ, your sin has been washed away in history. Not in some future purgatory, not in some what you can do to wipe away your sin. It happened. He put Christ on display in history at one time. That's already happened. We have the records. We know it happened. Jesus took upon himself your sin. It is real. It's finished. Jesus cried it on the cross. It is finished. The gospel is fully good news. There is no dread for those who are in Christ. There's no part of the gospel that is yeah, but there's, there's one caveat, there's one way out that God might, you know, flip the switch. And no, you are accepted in Christ. It's accomplished by the very fact that God has done it all. That's where we go back to that error. If God's the one who done it, who did it, then you know it's done. If God was just sort of working with what we thought we needed to see, man, is there a lot of uncertainty in that? But if God did it, then it's done. He does not fail in his purpose. Jesus said, I came to accomplish all that the Father gave me. So it's done. Your, your forgiveness is finished. Your redemption is complete. Furthermore, boasting and other forms of human pride, they actually seek to, they, they do, they undermine the gospel message. For whenever we start talking about our deservingness or what we think we did, we actually corrupt and obscure the message of the gospel. We obscure the message of the gospel. The gospel is we were trapped in sin. God freed us. And it was a gift by grace through Jesus Christ. And next week, we're going to look carefully at Paul's 
last question. Well, then what happens to the law? Do we nullify it? Do we throw it out? And he actually says, no, but on this basis, we establish the law. And that's going to be really exciting. But for this week, meditate on the completeness of your redemption, the cost of your redemption. And let, let that drive your obedience to God. Not out of fear, but out of love for him, seeing the price of your redemption.